0: Triumphal entry in the scriptures, the gospel accounts. I've chosen to, uh, to, to do the passage from Luke chapter 19. Uh, if you turn to Luke chapter 19, beginning with the 28th verse, going down to verse 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would speak out, cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and the opportunity this morning. To hear it and to meditate and reflect on it. We pray, Lord, as you speak to us through it, that you would make us more like your son Jesus than when we came. For we ask it in his name. Amen. There was a sense of expectation in the air. The itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, whose three-year teaching and preaching ministry had created such a stir throughout Israel, was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. He had been in the city before. But this time, it was different. Only recently, news had arrived from those who had passed through the town of Bethany that two months before, something miraculous had occurred. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Surely, surely someone with power over life and death was the long-awaited Messiah promised in the scriptures. The one who would free Israel from its bondage and re-establish the kingdom of David. Surely God would use him to overthrow the oppressive rule of pagan Rome. Yes, there had been talk That Jesus had predicted he would come to the city and die at the hands of the Jewish leaders. But that just didn't square with what was expected of the Messiah. So it had to be wrong. He had been somewhat secretive of his mission up to this point and even warned his disciples from time to time not to talk too much about his activities. But this must be the time. This must be the time. And the way he came into the city seemed to affirm the crowd's messianic expectations. But the response to Jesus was mixed. While some expected a messianic revolution, others considered him a dangerous imposter. And others were just indifferent. Each person in every generation must decide what to do with what God has done through the coming of the shepherd King this morning i'm going to ask you to do what i did as i reflected on this text for the last couple of weeks and that is to think about the responses and to think about how they reflect maybe some of your responses of your own heart today and then as we look at their responses we're also going to look at jesus response back to the crowd there are at least three different responses of the people present on palm sunday that still reflect the responses that we find today so just how did the people respond to jesus Well, first, we see the response of his disciples. As Jesus nears the Mount of Olives, which was the predicted place of the return of the Messiah, he is in sovereign command of his destiny. He tells his disciples exactly where to go and what to do to find the mount he would ride in the city. There are those who think, well, this must have been prearranged by Jesus somehow. You know, He must have slipped into the city at night or sometime when the disciples weren't with him and they were with him all the time. And made this arrangement, but that's not really what the text tells us in any of the gospel accounts. It really indicates that Jesus knows what's going to happen, he predicts what's going to happen, he's in sovereign control of what's going to happen in the next week. We know because we have hindsight, we read the scriptures, and we know what happens. None of those who were there in that day knew what was going to happen. And what Jesus does next is an extraordinarily important parable acted out in the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Pilgrims who come into the city for the Passover feast usually came by foot. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that it's a very tight place. The gates are rather small. The streets are rather narrow. It's not a place where you're riding around a lot on horses. So Jesus comes in an unusual way, and in fact it's so unusual, it's the only recorded instance in the Gospels where Jesus rides. Think about it. Jesus walks from place to place. But in this case he rides rather than walks, even though it was only two miles distant from where he was going to where he would end up. His actions are designed to communicate his kingship, his fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, that predicted that, the, that Israel's future king would come riding on the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah writes. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey i will cut off the chariot from ephraim and the war horse from jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends from the river to the ends of the earth so while jesus arrives as a king there's a contrast between his entry and the elaborate entry of a lot of the roman leaders that they would have seen coming in and out of the city who would have come in an elaborate entourage with horses and soldiers, and, but not so with Jesus. He comes as a king, but his, regal, his entry is regal, but it's humble, reminiscent of the entry of Solomon into Jerusalem when he was proclaimed king, and in, pro, and in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 I just read to you. The disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they acclaimed him as the promised king through whom God had been working with great power, but they didn't completely understand his mission. Dennis alluded to that earlier, so did the Camper. They really didn't understand, even after all the time they had spent with him and all the things he had said, what he was up to. The manner of his entry should have clued them into the nature of his kingship, but they missed it. John Piper describes the event, these events in this way. He writes, It's an event of great insight and great misunderstanding. The great insight was that this Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He was the Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all God's promises. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works take his throne and make Israel free from Rome. The disciples did not understand it all. But their response to what they did know was rightfully one of worship. They didn't know everything and didn't remember everything that Jesus said and would do. But what they had seen was enough to convince them that this one who was coming in was worthy of worship, a worship based on what they had seen and heard. The parallel accounts in Matthew and and Mark fill out the story of that day a little bit more. We are told that the disciples responded by spreading their robes and palm branches on the road to create a royal pathway and proclaimed him as their Davidic king. We sang those several times this morning. We've sung about that. Luke, who was writing to a Gentile audience, doesn't even mention the palm branches in his account that I just read to you because he was writing really to a Gentile audience. And normally, palm branches weren't associated with Passover. They are normally associated with the festival or Feast of Tabernacles, which is a Jewish festival that has a particular association with the end times. While the Passover, on the other hand, which Jesus came into the city to celebrate, in which he indeed would become the sacrifice, ultimate Passover sacrifice, was a picture instead of sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. It is significant in this story to an understanding of who Jesus claims that he is, that both of these ideas are associated here. Jesus is coming, and he is coming to bring in the kingdom of God. And we, indeed, since the time of his coming to, when he returns, are living in the end times, no matter how long they may last. We are living in that time in between. but The kingdom of God is being made manifest through Christ. But we also know that he came on that home Sunday into the city for a purpose and Dennis talked about that earlier too he came with a purpose and the purpose was to die on the cross for our sins in addition to the disciples there was also the response of a larger crowd there's a recent book by uh, Kossenberger and Taylor called the final days of Jesus and it's an interesting book it's uh, it the whole book that describes basically the events of this final week in Jesus' life. And it's a great book to go through just to kind of get a picture of all the things that happened to Jesus or what happened to him um, during this time. And he describes the feeling of the city in this way. He says, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark. Filled to the brim with both messianic fervor and hatred of Roman of the Roman rule. Now most of the people who took part in the events, they missed the point of it. They were there. They participated, but they missed the point. But sparked by the response of the disciples, they joined in on the celebration, as the other gospel writers note. Luke really focuses in primarily on the disciples. He says it's the disciples that's, you know, that, that did this and started this. But in the other gospel accounts, it's clear that the crowds began to also participate in these events on Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry. They loved the shouting, the glory, and all the excitement of it. I mean, think about it. Um, when the choir was up here singing, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Michael W. Smith song, didn't you feel a little bit like shouting Hosanna yourself? You know how it is. You can get caught up in the, the excitement of the event and, uh, and the things that, and we know, we, we feel that way because we're believers and we, and we rejoice in what, uh, what, what God has done. But just simply by being in a group of people that's just celebrating, excited about something, they all kind of got into this but they did not see the cross at the end of the road, and they would not like the price they would have to pay if they had listened to the content of Jesus's message. They wouldn't like what they had heard if they had listened to what he had said all along. Even the disciples missed it. As long as they believed that Jesus had come to follow their agenda, to bring in to bring in their demands, and maybe maybe even overthrow the hatred they hated Romans, they followed and shouted their support. But when they began to see that the Lord's plans didn't match theirs, and when they began to see that he had some demands of his own, they they turned their backs on him. Some who shouted his praise on Palm Sunday were undoubtedly joining in the jeering crowds on Good Friday, demanding his crucifixion. The crowds were always fluctuating in their understanding of Jesus, you know. When he was able to feed them on several occasions, miraculously, they followed him around. But on Good Friday, they weren't there. But as a whole, Jerusalem rejected the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, and this rejection would lead to judgment. And we'll talk about that when we consider what Jesus' response was to the crowd. And then there was a third response, that of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. How did those who knew the scriptures and should have recognized the signs of the Messiah's arrival respond? How did these people who should have known better respond? Well, they were too busy worrying about their own health and prosperity, too busy protecting their own positions of prestige and wealth to take Jesus' claims seriously. So worried that they tried to crush the demonstration and demanded that Jesus rebuke his disciples and silence their, their acclamation and praise. Because see, they were worried. They were worried that if the Romans got wind of this, they wouldn't like it that there was a, there was a king being proclaimed here, there wasn't Caesar, and their own power and prestige would be at stake. And Jesus responds with a stinging criticism that his identity is so foundational that the inanimate creation knows more about what's taking place than the Pharisees do. Dumbfounded by his response and uncomfortable with his claims, the seed is planted in their hearts to have Jesus betrayed, tried, and crucified. In human terms, Jesus' destiny was sealed the moment he rode into Jerusalem. Of course, we know from the scriptures that the religious leaders could not forcefully take his life. Jesus willingly laid, it, willingly laid it down on our behalf. In spite of the opposition of the Pharisees, how did Jesus respond to all the praise and acclaim given by the crowd? Even though the Pharisees tried to throw a blanket over the whole thing, how did Jesus respond? You would expect that you know, he would respond with, with joy or I know that if, if it was me, and, you know, I, I tend to be an introvert, I'd be a little embarrassed by the whole thing, but then after a while, I would inside, I really would love it, right? You know, even if you're an introvert, you've got to love it when the crowd is on your side and, and they're with you, but Jesus responds in a very unexpected way in the last three verses, in verses 41 to 44. As Jesus enters the city, and he looks out there's a valley between the Mount of Olives and, and the city of Jerusalem. You have to kind of wind your way down. So he's got a very good view. You still can get a good view from the Mount of Olives from that point to the city of Jerusalem. It's where a lot of the pictures are taken from the, of the city of Jerusalem, when you see the pictures of the city of Jerusalem from a distance. As he enters the city, as he sees the city, he doesn't respond with a sense of triumph and joy that you might expect. Instead, his heart is filled with sadness and tragedy. One comment, as one commentary translates it, Jesus burst into tears. I think that's a fair way of translating what's going on here. Jesus burst into tears. He is overwhelmed with grief, if you will, for the city and the people that, that are in it. He knows only too well the fickleness of the crowd and even the fickleness of the hearts of his own disciples, one of whom would betray him before the week was out. John Piper writes about this. He says, so Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew. The Pharisees were going to get the upper hand. The people would be fickle and follow their leaders. And Jesus would be rejected and crucified. And within a generation, the city would be obliterated. Jesus laments, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Israel wanted peace on their terms with a defeated Rome and a restored Jewish kingdom. That's what they wanted. That's what the crowd really was clamoring for that day. But by rejecting Jesus, they not only gave up external peace, they would more importantly forfeit the internal peace with God that comes through the reconciling and redemptive work of Christ. Jesus says they had missed the day of visitation, the day of the Messiah's coming. And because of their failure over the years to keep their covenant stipulations, God would judge them as he had done before. And that judgment came through an army led by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. And he did exactly what Jesus here predicted. He besieged the city. And he took it apart. And the temple was destroyed. And the only things that you can see of the temple today is if you go to see what's called the Wailing Wall, which is part of the retaining wall of the original Temple Mount, but, it's not, but the temple is not there. The importance of making a wise decision about Jesus is a constant theme in Luke's Gospel. Luke brings it up quite a bit. There are consequences for rejecting the Father's offer of grace in Jesus the shepherd king. Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus' claims were not for an earthly political kingdom, or he would have ridden into the city on a lowly beast of burden. He wouldn't have ridden in on the city on a lowly beast of burden. And he would have done exactly what the crowd wanted. He could have overthrown the Roman government. He had the power, he had the ability. It was certainly not for anything personal that Jesus made these claims. He didn't ask for anything for himself neither position, nor power, nor prestige. He asked for nothing. Remember when he was tempted in the wilderness, the beginning of his three-year ministry, Satan tried to tempt him with all those things, and Jesus rejected them. Palm Sunday was a demonstration that Jesus Christ is the center of God's redemptive plan and of the claim of God upon the life of every human being. How we view Jesus determines how we relate to God. And each person in every generation must decide what to do with what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of the shepherd king. The same conflicts of heart and soul rage still around us as they did in Jesus' day. And, like I asked you at the beginning, to think about where are we today in relationship to Jesus' claims? Are we like the fickle members of that Palm Sunday crowd who celebrated Jesus' coming as long as it was convenient? As long as the price that had to be paid was not too steep? There are people around the world who know what it means to pay a steep price to be a follower of Christ. Even on this day, some will die because of their faith in Christ. Or are we like the religious leaders of Jesus today? We're just too busy protecting our own interests to pay much attention to his claims. Unlike the Pharisees, we may not reject Jesus outright. We may not just say, well, Jesus, we reject you. We don't do that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have accepted him. But is our hardness of heart and blindness to sin keeping us from experiencing the fullness of grace revealed to us in Christ? The longer I am a Christian, the more I realize just how fickle my heart is. Kind of in a Western American Christianity, we kind of play this game, I think, where we somehow wanna give the impression to everybody that the older we are in Christ, the more certain we are that we're victorious or we don't have sin in our life. Fact of the matter is, I think, from the history of the church, and the biographies of great Christian saints I've read, from the experience of some of my friends who are have been believers in the Christ a long time, that's just not the case. The longer I've been a believer, the more convinced I have become, and the more aware I've become of the depths of sin in my heart. How fickle my heart is. How easily I am tempted to harden my heart and turn a blind eye to the sin in my life. I might be able to see it in someone else. But I certainly can turn a blind eye to it in my own life and to replace God with a variety of idols on any given day, or any given hour, or any given minute, for that matter. Things that I replace God with. I'm more aware of how easy it is to attempt to justify my behavior rather than cultivating a heart of repentance and faith in Christ. Now listen, the way we behave is important. It matters. We need a a long obedience in the same direction, as one writer has put it. But that obedience doesn't come by making stabs at being better. It comes from pursuing the grace to be found in knowing and worshiping Christ. Like the disciples, on that Palm Sunday, we may not understand everything. But Luke's account of Palm Sunday reminds us that we need to worship Jesus as our king with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. There is a sense in which after the cross, every day is a day of God's visitation. So we must, as you've heard from this pulpit, and in Sunday school, I'm sure, here over the years, we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We don't just accept it one time and then put it on the back shelf somewhere. It is something, it's what it means when it says in Scripture, to take up your cross daily and follow me. It means to count the cost, to know what it means, to rehearse what, the, what Christ has done for you on a daily basis to allow the truths of the gospel and the reality of our new identity in Christ to transform our hearts and our minds. And that's where change will come. It doesn't come from trying to be better. And we need to remember that while Jesus came on Palm Sunday as the humble shepherd king and he set his face toward Good Friday and the cross to redeem sinners, one day he will return. As the glorious Son of Man, and a real and inevitable judgment will come with him. It's a reality that should move us to make the most of the time that has been given to us and to burden us with a heart to make the hope known to those who do not know Christ. It's easy to be a follower of Christ on Palm Sunday, it becomes much harder on Good Friday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we could have easily been there with those disciples and the crowd that was around there on that Palm Sunday so many years ago. Our hearts reflect some of the same attitudes as we find there. Lord, we pray you take the scriptures in and as we reflect on, on what your son did for us this week and what he underwent so that we might be redeemed and might be brought into relationship with you through him. As we reflect on those things, Lord, deepen our, our, our gratitude for what you've done and uh, deepen our awe at the grace that you've shown us in your son. And then when Easter Sunday arrives, may we say we're more like your son Jesus than we started out this week on Palm Sunday. And may that be our testimony every day until we meet you face to face.